ನಮೋ ಥಗವತ So this afternoon, the opportunity to reflect, contemplate the way things are. And so this reflection, it's, it's not like a teaching or a talk as such, but to contemplate. When, the, when you hear what I say, how does it affect you? You know, because you're the one that knows how you you receive the words that I will that I'm saying, and each one of us is going to be different. We're not we have separate forms, so we we experience with different conditioning, different experiences, different genders, different cultural backgrounds. Uh, different age groups. So all these differences create this sense of I am this different from you. And so we live our lives with this, with this illusion that I am different from the rest of the world. So this is this kind of in Buddha Dhamma, the teaching of the Buddha, this is this sense of a separateness, of just being identified with the physical body, with what you look like, is an illusion that was conditioned into us when we're innocent infants, children. We're told by our parents, by our peers, by our teachers, by the priests and all the adult world tells us what's right and wrong. And this affects us, you know, so we become very conditioned with definite views about morality, about virtue, about how things should be and how things shouldn't be. And so we're always operating from these forms that we're conditioned by. And this can carry us on through a lifetime, in a, in a human lifetime living, say, even up to 100 years, where we're conditioned when we're innocent to see life in a certain, we see ourselves in a, in a in separate, the separateness of the self. 
And modern life in the Western world is very much based on being an individual, being a, asserting your individuality or separateness from everyone else, or being special, or going to be approved of, we want to be socially accepted, or we want to rebel against the system. So we react as we grow up. We begin to question all the do's and don'ts that we received when we were uh, like an innocent child absorbing whatever was was given to us. We start questioning. And then in many religions, to doubt is a, is a sin. So we, we're conditioned by fear, fear of being a sinner, getting things wrong, of going to hell, of being reborn in some miserable state. There's all kinds of things that one can imagine will happen if we, if we don't conform to the cultural conditioning, religious conditioning that we've received. So fear is a very common human emotion. There's, as I've said many times, there's a lot to fear as a separate individual. Having a delicate body, the bodies of male, female, or delicate forms in a vast, mysterious universe. And we're caught for a lifetime in the time belt of, uh, depending on the age of the body, how you see yourself. Caught in the gender identity caught in the political or religious or atheistic identity, all identities that, that we tend to create a separate self even more so. So ask yourself, is in ultimate reality, is there a separate individual place for anything in ultimate reality. And of course, ultimate reality is, uh, is like a superlative. We can't ultimate, it's ultimately real or deathless. Is, uh, you can't really imagine it, except uh, like we create images of heaven where you're eternally happy in a form, or hell where you're suffering misery for eternity in a, in a human form. So reflecting on the way it is, you know, to ask yourself, are you really this limited form that you identify with? Is this your true identity or is this just what you've been told, what you believe? Now, in the Theravada Buddhist tradition, the Buddha used the word Dhamma, 
which we translate into English as absolute reality or ultimate reality. When we try to imagine Dhamma, make an image of it, you know, you, the best you can do is make a symbol. So in traditional Buddhist cultures, they make the Dhammajaka, a wheel, Then in uh, Theravada and in Mahayana Buddhism, Tibetan Buddhism, they make images of Buddha, of devas, of devils, and so forth. So, so Buddhists can, have, you know, the Buddha was, a, according to our system, was an actually actual human being, had a history, established the teaching. So in this, he established the, the Dhamma, not as a doctrine, doctrinal system. It's not a, about a believing in Dhamma, because you don't know what to believe in. When we use the word God, then we, we've, we tend to think of a form, usually a male form, a patriarchal judging, deity, or an all-loving father. But with the word Dhamma, it uh, doesn't have any form. But this is what we take refuge in. We take refuge in the Dhamma. So how do you take refuge in something you can't imagine? Ultimate reality is uh, is a uh, is the superlative English translation. But what is that? What is ultimate reality? And so the Buddha, before he passed away, according to Pali tradition, uh, said, I leave the, the Dhamma and the Vinaya. Now the Vinaya is a discipline for monastics. So that's all about form. That's form, like the day of the eight precepts. That's a form. The ten precepts is a form. The Siladhara precepts is a form. The Bhikkhu precepts is a form. So form has, you know, is something we can understand through our conditioning. The formless, we can't, we, we don't understand it. The mind goes into doubt. If you, is Dhamma, you know, ultimate reality? And what is ultimate reality? It leaves, at least in my experience, to say, I don't know, ultimate reality. As an image, I can't imagine Dhamma, ultimate reality, absolute reality. Because imagination is all about forms, right? Forms, bad forms, good, bad, right, wrong, heaven, hell, all these forms are possible. We, we can imagine even like abstract forms, beautiful forms, ugly forms. 
But forms are always limited. They have by the very form that they assume. So we limit ourselves by what we think we are, what we believe we are, which can be, we can be very egotistical, thinking I'm special, I'm the most gifted person in the universe, ultimately uh, kind of exaggerating myself as a form, or I can think I'm worthless, nothing, or I might be very modest. Well, I'm just an average guy, but it's still average guy, the best guy in the whole world or the worst guy in the whole universe is, is just words that we tend to grasp and operate from. But the forms that the Buddha encouraged us to use are not for identification, personal identification, not to just give us another identity, but in the world that we have to live in, the world of forms, of time, of birth and death, of good and bad, the forms that are the, like the eight precepts is based on goodness, good action, good speech. The Vinaya, the Siladhar precepts are all based on, on doing what's good and refraining from doing what's bad. So the form is about good behavior, bad behavior, right speech, uh, to refrain from uh, using speech to harm or hurt or insult or cause delusions with others. It's not like freedom of speech, which is a, a big issue at this time, but talking about my right to say what I think and feel. Uh, First Amendment for Americans is, is uh, freedom of speech. Then I can say anything. I can tell lies, insult you, hurt your feelings, because it's my, you, it's my right to, to, to say what I feel, whatever I'm thinking. Or in Buddha Dhamma, it's right speech, which is taking consideration into the time, the place, the situation, and speaking from intuitive wisdom rather than just from uh, feeling, emotional feelings of the moment. So com- committing ourselves to forms is a, is a sacrifice in many ways because we're kind of limiting ourselves, what we can do, what we can say. But yet, in terms of reflective meditation, it helps us to see through the conditioning that we've that we've inevitably acquired through maybe no deliberate intention of our own, but just through the experience of being born and growing up, growing older, uh, getting old. So time, space, 
you know, they, we have to live in, in this space with forms that are based on time, birth and death, beginning and ending. So all forms have a beginning, have a birth, and they all have an ending. They arise and cease. And when they cease, where do they go? Where do the forms go? When they cease, you know, into some kind of uh, latent memory, function of the brain, nobody knows. But this identity with form, and yet the Buddha said all forms are impermanent and not self. So then the form that the summoners, the mendicants take on is to be used with wisdom, not just a ident new identity. So here at Amaravati, the, uh, we try to encourage this reflectiveness to use the form skillfully for liberation. So even though the form has its limitation, limits action and speech, we can't just say what we feel in the moment or do, impulsively do whatever we're habitually inclined to do. We have precepts to reflect upon. I remember in training in Thailand how, how uh, the Vinaya seemed so complicated and uh, it was trying to fit in 227 rules to live by 227 precepts and uh, try to, to remember them and use them skillfully. At first, uh, you just had to memorize them. It took a long time to just memorize them. And then to, but they were, had an effect on your life because uh, the monastic form was uh, in the monastery, all the monks were, keeping to that form. So there was a sense of sangha or a community in the, in the traditional form that we call sangha. So then that, that gave it a new identity, a member of sangha, a community of one who's practicing for liberation, practicing the Dhamma, to realize the deathless reality, ultimate absolute reality. But like any form, it has its limitations because when we attach to perceptions of right and wrong, good and bad, skillful, unskillful, that's all about form. And it's easy to become very judgmental in this form. To see it in terms of who's a, a good monk and who isn't. Who keeps all the precepts strictly and who doesn't. 
it's easy to to create a sense of I'm better than you because I'm much more strict. I keep all the precepts all the time as best I can where you don't seem to, you're pretty loose with them. So we, we can, that's clinging to the form. For my, there's some who are more strict, some who aren't so strict. But in my conditioning, my social conditioning is about the strict. The stricter they are, the more strict you are, the better you are. Your goodness depends on how strict you keep the form because you get a lot of praise for that. So in Thailand, where I was uh, the first Western monk to stay with Lung Po Cha in Ubon, in northeast Thailand, you know, you get a lot of praise for being very strict. And we like to be praised. It's good to be admired and, and people say what a good monk you are. And so this, this helps to condition this sense of strictness is the best and more liberal interpretations is weakness, laziness. We have different words to, just, to how we perceive something that's less than what we believe in and we practice. Well, this is still forms that, that are basically good and bad, right and wrong. So the bhavana or meditation, bhavana is a Pali word for meditation, is to reflect on clinging to forms. So Lumpur Cha was very, very excellent at pointing to this clinging process that, that whether you're Thai or Sri Lankan or European or whatever, we tend to be conditioned to cling to forms, cling to perceptions, cling to ideals. So this clinging can be witnessed. You can be aware of when you, when you begin to reflect on experience in the present. If I get upset about something, it's because I'm clinging to something that I don't agree with or don't like. So then the insight is to let go. Does that mean letting go of the precepts or the vinaya, or does it getting rid of it? Some Western monks I've known have the arrogance to think we don't need the, the form. We go straight to the Dhamma which is still a conceited view of oneself. So I, I deliberately chose to live in a very strict Vinaya monastery in Thailand because I had the insight before I met Ajahn Chah that I, I was too permissive by my nature. So uh, that I could manipulate conditions, 
because I had that conceit that I, I can do what I want. I'm free. I'm a nonconformist. I considered myself in a very conceited way as a nonconformist. And uh, as I grew up, you know, I remember reading a, a book called The Conformist by Alberto Moravia, an Italian writer, when I was a teenager. And the, the conformist convinced me that I didn't want to be one. So I had this kind of intellectual contempt for conformity. People are just conforming out of fear and stupidity, but I'm not going to do that. But when I started reflecting on, I'm a nonconformist, so I'm in, in some ways then I assume that I'm better than a, one who conforms. You know, reflecting on that very perception, I began to see that it was a creation of my mind. It made me separate, made me special, different from the rest. So when I decided to train with Lung Pao Cha, I decided to, to really conform to the Vinaya tradition as, as it was taught at Wat Nong Pa Pong at that time, very strict. Uh, precepts. And because I realized that's what I needed, I needed to learn how to bow, how to, how to obey, how to conform to precepts, some of which I didn't, you didn't understand. There's so many, the Vinaya was something from the past of ancient India, 2,500 years ago, and a lot of the precepts don't seem to have that much application in the present day modern life. So being educated, I had this idea that it's an old fashioned system, but then reflecting on this form, and I could see my own tendency to interpret it or to dismiss it according to my view so this sense of a separate self carried into monastic life as I lived in a sangha that was very conforming, totally conforming. And I began to understand the value of that discipline, the Vinaya, because it was traditional. It wasn't some new age idea, something out of modern psychology. It wasn't American or European. It was something from, from ancient India. And so the Buddha established it according to the tradition. For what? To to give us a form to reflect from. Because even after enlightenment, you have to you live in a world of forms. And how to live in the world of forms is basically to 
have wisdom to to be able to adapt to change to conditions to time and place that takes intuition with wise intuition be able to assess the situation what is appropriate for this time and place So the form, now, after all these years as a Buddhist monk, you know, and having insight into Dhamma, I realize refuge in Dhamma is, is here and now. It's not like Ajahn Sumato or a, a name or a person. It's here and now. Conscious awareness here and now is not a form. So today it's very interesting on the internet and YouTube and things like that with the technology of this age, which is kind of miraculous. There's so much interest in trying to understand con uh, consciousness. What is consciousness? Is it in the brain? Is it a part of the brain? Is it a section of the brain? Or we tend to see consciousness as something in time and space. But then when we begin to reflect, if there's no consciousness, how could there ever be knowledge of space and form? So consciousness is apparent here and now, timeless, and it's impersonal. It's not like my consciousness is in my brain and your consciousness is in your brain, so we're two separate consciousnesses. We're two separate forms. But consciousness is not male or female, not Buddhist, not Christian. It has no name, but it's what, it's apparent here and now. So we know, each one of us know we're conscious, experiencing consciousness, and the doubts we create about it are created by thought. When we try to think about, try to find consciousness as an object, you can't find it. When you look for it, try to see it in some objective way. You, you just can't find it, it's impossible. So is it part of the brain or is it, uh, you know, this consciousness when the body dies, does consciousness die? These are questions to ask yourself. Or is consciousness a separate soul? We can, in my background, religious background, it was like we have a separate, unique soul. And I assume that was some kind of conscious soul that was separate in some way. Because each, each of us has a separate soul, according to this belief.
But the word soul is also another English word for what we don't know. What is a soul? What is this sense of being here and now? What is, what is consciousness for all of us at this moment? It's what we actually are. And which we become aware of as Dhamma, refuge in ultimate reality, because consciousness doesn't have a birth or death, doesn't have a beginning or ending. Can we say consciousness is immortal? But the word immortal in English implies a kind of living forever in time. But consciousness is not a time-bound condition, it's not a thing. So there are growing interests now in consciousness, which I think is very good, because the conflicts in, uh, in the world that we live in, on planet Earth, are endless. They go on and get, seem to get worse, the climate change and revolutions and political issues and there's everything so complicated in the forms of, that we experience. Because modern science is an exploration into, into form. So it's always going out. Science goes out with, you know, wanting to establish a colony on Mars or going out to things that are far away, that are minute. But it's always this going out, trying to see and create images of galaxies and planets and stars that all have beginnings and endings. So bhavana, or meditation, is not going out anymore. It's not seeking ultimate reality through, through investigating the forms, but seeing the limitation of form, of clinging to form. As long as we cling to form, we're bound to the forms that we cling to. It's a form of bondage. We're limited by what we cling to out of habit, out of conditioning, out of fear. So the insight is to understand the limitation of form. All conditions are impermanent. Sape sankarani cha, all conditions, all sankaras, all phenomena is impermanent. Well, that includes everything that we see, hear, smell, taste, touch, think, feel, right and wrong, good or bad, heaven and hell, the sun, moon, and stars, galaxies, universes, planets, all forms that we can see through, through our vision or through telescopes or microscopes. But for stopping this outgoing process of seeking reality through, through the senses, we look inward. 
we stop trying to find enlightenment as some kind of personal attainment. We stop, we stop, we, we, we begin to see that as long as, as I, as a separate person, seek enlightenment, that that person, separate person, is very limited. My personality, my conditioning, my body, everything, my vision, my hearing, they're all very impermanent. Old age is a really good experience to, to reflect upon because in youth you have the vision of being forever vigorous and young, but when you're old, you don't have that image anymore. What you depend on and identify with is no longer all that functional or operative in the way it used to be. So the body is not worth holding on to, clinging to, but we, but we still have to live with it. So in terms of action and speech, then to do good and refrain from doing what's harmful to others, to oneself, speech, to be able to use speech in, in ways that are beneficial rather than harmful, divisive, hurtful. So the form, you know, I reflect on my years as a, as a Theravada bhikkhu, and I think I'm very grateful for that, to live within the structure that's very traditional. You can call it archaic or antiquated, but it still works. It holds the Sangha together, like what you see here. Couldn't, couldn't have possibly exist if the Buddha had not established the Vinaya before he passed away. Because the form is carried on from one generation to the next, so it's very traditional. And in modern terms, tradition can be seen as a kind of blindly clinging to old customs that no longer seem appropriate for modern life. There's all kinds of questions about freedom and free speech, individualism, being a special person, being a powerful person, equality, everything is equal. And these are, are ideals of the time But can forms, but can form ever be equal? Is, is my form equal to your form? You know, so, you know, the forms are about differences. They change. That's their nature. But what doesn't change is conscious awareness. So the form itself is to is to help to guide to reflect upon to live in in society without becoming deluded and bound to traditional forms just in a slavish ignorant way but how to work within the 
in the form, this old traditional Theravadan form, how to use it in modern day England. And I remember when Ajahn Chah asked me to come to the UK, you know, I, in Thailand, it's a very traditional Buddhist country. There are very few religious minorities there, a very kind of traditional Theravadan culture. But then coming to a country that has totally different culture, where people are, have different expectations, different views, different attitudes than what you can expect in Thailand. And I remember being, when I started thinking about it, what am I doing going to the UK? How can I go on alms round in London? I don't know anybody in London. You can't have money, you can't buy food, you can't grow food. You're totally dependent on generosity of others. And that's a bit scary when uh, being American, you're kind of brought up this idea of being self-sufficient, not being dependent on other people for anything. Self-sufficiency, I can do it all myself, I don't need your help. And then to find yourself in a, in a traditional form that you voluntarily became, you wasn't forced into it, suddenly you're, you're dependent on food, shelter, robes, medicine from a society. In Thailand it was easy because of the traditional cultural traditioning of Buddhism in that country. But what to do in a country like England, in a city like London, You know, when I tried to think about it, I remember feeling uh, a, a panic. I went to Ajahn Chah and I, and I said, I don't, I don't see how it's going to work. I can't see how I can keep to this traditional form in a modern city like London where I don't know anybody and I know any Buddhists. And so his response is, I've recited many times was, he asked me, are there any good people in England? And I said, well, yes, I believe so. And he said, go. So Lumpur Chah had, had a trust in the goodness, basic goodness and generosity of human beings, whether they were Europeans, Asians, didn't matter. So my experience in England has been one of, uh, you know, surprising generosity, respect. And so, you know, it, because it isn't uh, like people think of us as Buddhist missionaries. But I wouldn't come, I wouldn't want to live here as a Buddhist missionary trying to convert people to the way I think. 
it's, it's when questioned about you came here to convert Christians into Buddhists, I, I said, no, that's not for those interested. I'm here for those who are interested in Dhamma, in meditation, and generosity is the very basis of Buddhist culture. It's a very interesting time because it's, it's very international now. All the kind of racist views, uh, all the kind of class identities, gender identities are being questioned, not taken for granted, because they are just views about what's right and wrong and how things should be. So views can be practical, good, useful, or they can be totally harmful. But it's up to each one of us to realize that, that whatever view I may find coming up in my mind is a condition rather than a position I should take on life. So one can't help one's conditioning. We have to live with, with uh, the memories of the past, with the cultural conditioning we received when we were children. These things have their you know, they, they're stuck in the memory bank we have. But the difference is one sees them from the perspective of the Buddha or the watcher, the awareness, rather than from the personal. So instead of taking life personally, a very personal way, we see life as just the way it is. All things are changing, and all Dhamma is not a separate person. So this gives me a sense of unity with everything, with the universe. So the universe is one perfect whole, complete, or the, the world is changing, Consciousness doesn't change. So the thoughts, memories, emotional habits, these are subject to change, to all kinds of other conditions that affect us. But the refuge is in Dhamma, which is apparent here and now, timeless, and it's the freedom from being bound, limited to the forms that we have to live with. So I offer this as a reflection. Mm -hmm.